Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application learning product on the market. And of course, by Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. This week, Microsoft revealed their new Surface Duo phone, which goes on sale to U.S. customers on September 10th. Now, I debated whether I'd cover this or not because I'm not sure it's going to be an enterprise IT-related story, though by the form factor of the device and maybe its intended target audience, it could be, so I figured I'd cover it. The Surface Duo phone is the long-rumored foldable device. As an article from FastCompany.com states, it's probably the most well-known device that was never launched, as Microsoft had teased something like this over a decade ago. The new device will come in two storage capacities and prices. It's about $1,400 for the 128 gig or $1,500 for the 256 gig. The reviewer in this article suggested the preview device itself from a hardware and usability standpoint was a quote, delight. But the software seemed buggy. My Apple loving wife commented on the picture that I showed her and said, it's a flip phone. Microsoft created a flip phone. I don't think it's quite that and she didn't really give it much of a look. But I'm sure there's going to be others who are pretty dismissive of it too and it's going to be toward a very target audience. The reviewer did say with its design, if they get the bugs straightened out with the software, it would be the best pocket-sized device ever designed for using Microsoft Office apps, which that's going to be the key audience there. Most interestingly, of course, is that the operating system on the phone is not Windows. It is Android. This is a Microsoft device that does not run Windows. Now, I recall Brad Anderson boasting years ago that the experience using Office 365 apps on an iPad was superior to using it on the Surface 2 device at the time. Satya Nadella has said, quote, people who are really serious about software should make their own hardware, end quote. Panas Panay once talked about how they'd like to get Microsoft 365 available through a piece of hardware regardless of the platform that it's on and ultimately get the chance to make people more productive. The messaging seems clear. This is ultimately actually about the software. Microsoft's key market isn't necessarily Windows anymore. It never was and likely never will be hardware, particularly mobile devices. Office 365 and productivity apps is where their real advantage is and with the ability to provide via subscription model with enhanced support across many devices and operating systems, Microsoft's business is looking better than ever. They're just dominant in that area. At the price point, I don't think I'd be swayed into getting a phone like this, but it could be appealing to those who do want to spend a lot of time on their phones 
doing work activities. Personally, I've always got my MacBook or my laptop at hand and I feel like I'm more productive on that than a phone. Maybe because of this form factor and it's foldable and it's got two quite large screens on it by the looks of things, maybe this would be a better fit for me and I could find myself being more productive on it like I am with a laptop. But for now, I'm happy just to continue using my laptop. I don't need to use my phone as a primary driver. If you do use your phone as a primary driver, maybe this could be appealing to you and the $1,400 price tag will not put you off. It is important to note that this is not going to be a global release on September 10th though. It's only going to be for US customers initially, which I think also lets the product down initially. In a pretty significant story, a Windows Defender update KB2267602 is really messing up Citrix for some people. If you do not have the recommended exclusions in place for Windows Defender and Citrix, it will place the broker service.exe and high availability service.exe on Citrix delivery controllers into quarantine, essentially removing the services and completely breaking things. The suggestion here would be if you use Defender, either hold off on deploying the update or at least ensure you have the very complete and accurate exclusions configured. There is a Citrix article for this too, CTX279897, that details what you can do if you are affected by this. And some of the suggestions include taking the services out of quarantine and placing them back on the server, but also I've seen instructions on actually doing a repair of the broker service with the MSI. So sorry if you were affected by that because that would be a really bad day. And thanks go to Adam Yarborough for letting me know about this next one because I did not see a Citrix article or anything official on this one yet. But he was telling me that a Sophos antivirus update on the 4th of August is also causing some problems for Citrix customers. Word is, it's causing some issues on Citrix VDAs and also potentially breaking UPM. And I'd asked if he knew that if this was just a case of it breaking if you had something like um, on-access scanning enabled, but he said it didn't matter. It's just a widespread if you have Sophos antivirus that this could be breaking on your VDAs. So that's worth considering if you use Sophos, maybe don't just roll it into the image and punt it out there willy-nilly. Microsoft Teams, which reportedly experienced over 700% growth during the pandemic, is said to still be susceptible to malware infiltration of its updater installer. You may recall that I reported on this a few months ago too, that attackers could simply intercept the updater process to execute anything they wish. Well, now security expert Regan Jayapal reported that he was testing against the same vulnerability once more and states that, quote, the patch previously provided for Teams was to restrict its ability to update via a URL. Instead, the updater allows local connections via a share or local folder for product updates, end quote. So essentially, the updater can no longer be used to execute something hosted on a web service like via URL with HTTP, HTTPS, or something with port numbers included in it. But if an attacker could get their payload into your network, onto your machines, or onto a file share, they could still execute it via the updater from within. According to bleepingcomputer.com, it was found that this was not a bug. 
and that Microsoft couldn't fully fix it as it was an overall design flaw that would cause serious ramifications to users if they did try to fix it. The response from Microsoft was, quote, Thank you again for submitting this issue to Microsoft. We determined that this behavior is considered to be by design as we cannot restrict SMB source for update because we have customers that apparently rely on this example folder redirection, end quote. I guess the good news is since it can no longer be infiltrated with like a URL where someone could host something on an external site outside your organization and have that execute, it's still worrying that if they're able to get a payload in, they could simply execute it with the updater on a piece of software that is now presumably pretty widely used in the enterprise. Recently, Microsoft published KB4557222 that has announced a really significant change. KB explains that they are switching the existing RPC net logon remote protocol to a new secure RPC. The updates to roll this massive change out will be released in two phases. The initial phase for updates released on or after August 11th, 2020, which is right about now, and the enforcement phase for updates released on or after February 9th, 2021. So pretty staggered. This is of course significant because it impacts connectivity amongst member computers and between them and Active Directory domain controllers. So it's key for communication across domain join machines. It said that the August update will enforce secure RPC usage for machine accounts on Windows-based devices, enforce secure RPC usage for trust accounts. It will also enforce secure RPC usage for all Windows and non-Windows domain controllers. It includes a new group policy to allow non-compliant device accounts, those that use vulnerable netlog on secure channel connections, even when DCs are running in enforcement mode or after the enforcement phase starts, which allows devices, ensuring devices will not be refused connection. There will also be a full secure channel protection registry key to enable DC enforcement mode for all machine accounts. Includes new events when accounts are denied or would be denied if the DC enforcement mode is enabled. This specific event IDs are explained in the article that I'll share with this episode, which is episode 137 on 5bytespodcast.com. So the short of it is, it sounds like at least in the first phase, you can essentially enable it but don't enforce it, and then you can possibly gather through your logs where it could potentially cause issues so you can remedy it and ensure that you've got everything properly in place for when it's enforced on February 9th, 2021. I strongly advise that you go to the article for instructions on how to deploy and get ahead of this because if you sleep on this until February, you're going to be in really big trouble. It's also worth mentioning that if you haven't got ahead of the LDAPs switchover, which I know was delayed due to the COVID surge, they decided they didn't want to roll it out in July like they had planned because it would disrupt so many organizations at an already turbulent time. But it is coming, so also you should be looking at LDAPs and ensuring you're ready for that. There's a pretty incredible report by ZDNet this week on a bad actor hijacking Tor exit nodes, which are nodes that Tor users go through to get out to browse on the internet. 
The report suggests the attack started in early 2020 and that by May, the bad actors' nodes accounted for 23.95% of all exit nodes in use on the Tor network. That is crazy. It's essentially a 1 in 4 chance of going through a dodgy server. The researcher says the group is performing person-in-the-middle attacks on Tor users by manipulating traffic as it flows through their exit relays, and that they are specifically targeting users accessing cryptocurrency-related websites using the Tor software or Tor browser. The goal of the person-in-the-middle attack is to execute something called SSL stripping by downgrading the user's web traffic from HTTPS URLs to less secure HTTP alternatives. And based on investigation, they said that the primary goal of these SSL stripping attacks was to allow the group to replace Bitcoin addresses inside HTTP traffic going to Bitcoin mixing services. Tor have been taking action to cull these malicious servers, but the report suggests that the attack is, is likely to continue due to the current vetting process in use for the Tor network. It's pretty open. So anyone who's a Tor enthusiast, if you also go to something like Coinbase and trade with something like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple or whatever, maybe avoid using Tor for now. And while I'm talking about HTTPS and security, congratulations to Let's Encrypt and probably more so to all of us web users out there as they just passed 1 billion certificates issued. Today, 81% of page loads are using HTTPS globally which is pretty significant. It's a huge increase even just in the last three years. And that's in large part thanks to Let's Encrypt making it accessible to pretty much all. And what may account for somewhat of a funny story this week, the alleged Twitter hacker, who you might recall got into like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and a bunch of high-profile Twitter users' accounts, was in court last week with a good old-fashioned COVID Zoom session. As you may expect, the legal profession aren't necessarily the most technically gifted, and with many hackers and wannabe hackers having a keen interest in this case, the inevitable happened. The Zoom session was hijacked with someone taking over the screen and playing a porn clip, and not just some everyday run-of-the-mill missionary sex clip either. I'll spare the details, you can just check it out for yourself if you're interested. But needless to say, the proceedings were halted, and they have said next time they will require a password for attendees. But as a Vice.com article covering the story suggests, a password gets shared with attendees online, so it's not necessarily the most secure way of securing your Zoom sessions. They really need to limit what attendees can and can't do versus what panelists or admins can and can't do. So top tip if you run Zoom sessions. And in another fun story, The Verge reported that a group of pen testers were allowed onto a Boeing 747 that was being retired, and they discovered that in the cockpit there is a 3.5-inch floppy disk drive which was being used for ongoing maintenance and patching of important navigation databases. It said that an engineer would visit every 28 days with updates on up to 8 floppy disks. The report suggests security experts have been working for years to try and find a way to hack into flight systems from publicly accessible parts of planes. There was apparently a case in which a researcher plugged in a USB mouse into an in-flight entertainment system on a British Airways flight 
and inputted long strings of text into an in-flight chat app, causing the entire in-flight system to crash, all from his seat. The 747 has now been retired, but it's reported that the 737 also still uses floppy disks, and that not all airlines have moved away from these yet. The report suggests that newer airliners may pose a greater risk as they use a fiber network on board and also, as one of my buddies on Twitter suggested, considering how scarce floppy disk drives are now, the floppy disks may actually provide some security through obscurity. So ironically, the modern planes may be an easier target than those old planes. Kind of like people commenting on a tweet from a few months ago of like a Russian government official. I think it might have been Putin using uh, Windows XP still. And people were pointing out that, well, the footprint for XP is so small that no one's really trying to attack it anymore. So he could actually be more secure using XP than he would be using Windows 10. Microsoft this week shared their research that showed fewer than 16% of organizations with conditional access have policies that apply to sign-ins using legacy authentication protocols. And that going forward, they will ensure that, that conditional access policies will apply to legacy authentication clients by default. The article also goes on about how MFA is crucial for security, and this gives me a moment to get on my soapbox if you don't mind. I know I've kind of ranted at the end of a couple of stories already, but please indulge me. So I try to enable MFA on as much as I can for my personal stuff. And in my work life now, MFA is also becoming a daily fixture for a lot of services that I use. And actually for some services, I have to MFA every hour. There's no option to, you know, remember it for seven days, 14 days or whatever. Every hour, the service times out, and when I log in, I have to re-MFA again. Well, this week, while working, I got MFA'd, as I do throughout the day. I was expecting this as I was trying to log into something at the time, and I approved it. It went through on the app, but then nothing happened. And then I got another one, another prompt, and I approved it, and this time it worked. But that sent me into a panic. I logged into my account and looked at all the sign-ins, and they all showed that they were local to me. But what if it was my other account, my personal account? So I went in there and they all seemed local too. So was it a failed attempt and a reattempt? I didn't see any trace of a failed attempt. Where did that MFA prompt come from? Was it from my work account that I was trying to log in with at the time? Was it from my personal account? Honestly, I didn't really check because I was expecting to MFA at the time. And it freaked me out enough that I went on a password changing blitz. Now obviously having MFA is much better than not having it, but I'm feeling like constant MFAing is somewhat of a detriment. For someone less technical, I wonder if they would have just approved it and not even thought twice, not even logged in and looked at all their sign-ins to see if there was something up and not having gone to the extent of what I did of changing my passwords. I feel like there's probably a balance that we have to strike with MFA, and I'm not sure what that balance is yet. I'm not a security guy in my day-to-day -day role, really, although I think all of us are now just by proxy of the world that we're living in if you're working in IT. But I would love to hear people's insights in that. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Peter Viglevin shared a really helpful tip for Windows 10 multi-session performance tweaking. He said that if you disable acrylic effects, it reduces CPU usage on the DWM.exe process. 
So there's a GPO where you can show clear logon background and there's also a reg that could be set. HKLM, software, policies, Microsoft, Windows, system. And it's a D word that you set to one for disable acrylic background on logon. And don't worry, I know it's difficult to decipher registry keys when I call them out on an audio only podcast. I will share a screenshot of that on the YouTube edition if you wanna watch the YouTube edition. Or alternatively, I'll share a link to this with this episode, which is episode 137 on fivebytespodcast.com under reference links. For all the Citrix WEM users out there, Arian Mensch announced the publication of an updated WEM SDK that includes support for version 20.03 and support for 20.06 coming soon. So if you want to be able to use PowerShell to do pretty much anything that you can do in the Citrix WEM console, this is the SDK for you. On last week's episode, I covered some of the announcements around the release of VMware Horizon 8. My former fellow VMware EUC champion and now VMware employee, Sean Massey, this week shared the first in a series of blog posts that will get more in-depth on the suite of products, promising a deep dive on the architecture and individual components of the suite like app volumes, DEM, RDSH, plus more. So follow that blog series to learn about VMware Horizon 8. Tim Mangana is on a tear recently with his MSIX-related content. This week, he shared a couple of blog posts highlighting the performance differences, again between AppV, MSIX, and MSIX AppAttach. And last week, I covered his blog post on comparing publishing times. But this week, he shared launch times and more. So check that out. And if you read the publishing times report, this one tells a very different story. Uh, The results are somewhat inverted, with the worst performer for publishing actually coming in top for launch time. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And if you're wondering what the hell I'm talking about, and I'm talking riddles, it's because I use this segment mostly to point you towards useful resources. And when it's something like a blog post that someone's put a lot of time into, I do not want to just give out the results or give out the blog post verbatim on the podcast. I'd rather just kind of give a headline and a little tease and get you to go out and click on it, which I share every link to everything I cover on the podcast with every episode. So you can read that for yourself. And I advise that you do and give Tim the click because he definitely deserves it for his hard work. And the results are very interesting. This week, I came across an Intune USB Creator PowerShell module in the PowerShell gallery that could be used for creating bootable WinPE USB for provisioning devices for enrollment in Intune. I use Rufus myself for creating some bootable images on USB, but this would be really interesting to do that with enrollment for Intune too. Finally, Andre Lebovicki, sorry if I butchered your last name, Andre, this week shared his recommended list of apps and must-haves for macOS, which I found pretty interesting. It's a pretty impressive list, and I had never heard of about 60% of the apps on here. I'm really intrigued by the idea of the Stream Deck integration with Bluetooth devices, the ability to just press a button to enable Bluetooth for a certain device, or better yet, to disable it when you're not using it without having to go into that clunky Bluetooth UI in macOS, which really sucks. There's also a really interesting app called the Quitter app, which automatically quits out of applications under certain criteria or conditions. Um, 
seems like a no-brainer to me, and yet I never thought of that before. Maybe Apple should be baking that, that into their operating system. But regardless, there's some really great tools and tips and apps that Andre lists, so if you're a macOS user, definitely check that out. And it feels like I ranted a lot more on this episode than I usually do, so I apologize. Some information's just about coming out as I record the podcast around Patch Tuesday patches, so expect that on next week's episode. And as always, thank you all so much for listening.